Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Jehoshaphat was a king of Judah. And at one point in his life, the Ammonites and the Moabites had come together as a horde to a place called Engedi and were planning to invade his land, Judah. And we read in 2 Chronicles that Jehoshaphat was afraid. He was afraid that the horde at Engedi would destroy, at the very least, his entire way of life, and what's more likely, his life itself. So Jehoshaphat called for a fast throughout Judah, and he summoned all of the people down to the capital at Jerusalem, and there they were, man, woman, child, gathered around him as he, in the temple of the Lord, called out in a prayer that ended with these words. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but... God, our eyes are on you. Now, I'm sure the pagan Moabites preparing their weapons nearby, if they could hear this prayer, would mock it. This is a prayer of weakness. In fact, that's what great Jehoshaphat is proclaiming in the prayer. He says, literally, we are powerless. That's not a good thing to be if you're about to engage in a great battle. You want to be powerful. So the Moabites would say, what is this? No courage? Trembling in fear? No power? Again, Jehoshaphat is a king. He's supposed to be the one who knows what to do, and yet in his very prayer, he admits to God, we don't know what to do. Is this an indecisive leader? Surely the Ammonites would mock that sort of thing. Even the modern spirit today, so far different than the ancient world, looks down on this attitude. The modern spirit is would say to Jehoshaphat, no, 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 to Jehoshaphat, you're playing yourself too small. You need to trust in yourself. You need a raised self-esteem. You need to believe you can do it or you won't be able to. But Jehoshaphat is saying, we can't do it. In fact, we don't even know what to do. But what the Moabites and Ammonites of the ancient world and the modern spirit overlooks is that when Jehoshaphat makes this prayer, he's not the weakest man who ever lived. In fact, he's tapping into the greatest source of power there is. It's because of the very last phrase in his prayer. He says, we are powerless against this horde. We don't know what to do, comma, but God, our eyes are on you. And with that one phrase, Added to the end of that prayer, he goes from being the weakest of all persons who would be destroyed by a foreign nation into someone tapped into the greatest possible power, not just on earth, but in the universe. You and I, we're Christians, yeah? And we deal every day in impossibilities. Might not feel that way, but that's what you're doing. Look, you've declared war 
by coming to Christ on the Axis powers of the entire world, congratulations, also the flesh, every bit of sin within yourself, and the devil himself, the greatest of all angelic beings who ever lived. You declared war on all of them, and they in turn have declared war on you. You're not just living your life peacefully, walking along. If you are a Christian, that is the sort of impossible warfare that is a part of your life. So if life's hard, well, there's why. What are the Ammonites and the Moabites of the ancient world, terrible though they were, compared to the gates of hell, which Jesus said will attack the church? Congrats, you're the church. The gates of hell, the hordes of hell, it's not just that they will at some future Armageddon attack. They're presently, although invisible, attacking the church. And you as a Christian are dealing with that every week. It's invisible, granted, but you see the outcome of it. Those are the impossibilities that you're dealing with. What Jehoshaphat had there in Jerusalem is nothing compared to what you have. It's just he could see his enemy and you could not. The circumstances you encounter as a Christian require a whole mountain's worth of wisdom, a whole ocean worth of insight to deal with appropriately. We don't know what to do. <laughs> But we pray with Jehoshaphat, God, our eyes are on you. We read in Scripture of the outcome of Jehoshaphat's struggle. How did his prayer turn out, this weak man kneeling? It says in 2 Chronicles 20, When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde that wanted to kill them, and behold... There were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. Jehoshaphat and Judah never picked up a weapon. God said, you stand aside. You are weak and you don't know what to do. You stand aside. Your eyes are on me. Watch. And God went out and killed the entire horde. This will be the same outcome in your case. It might not look like it. I mean, it's a hard battle that we wage. This will be the same outcome. Why? Because we're strong? No. <laughs> because our eyes are on one who is strong. And I mention this because today we are finishing the great hymn of Philippians 2. And we saw last week the humiliation of Christ. We saw how low Christ, though he is God, was God, is God, gives up his prerogatives, comes to the earth in the form of a man as a servant and goes down as deep as you can onto the cross to die for the sins of mankind. You don't get lower than that. But that is not the end of the great hymn. And now when we come to verse 9, to the end at verse 11, we are seeing the opposite. God reaching down and exalting Christ. That's what we're seeing here. And that is the basis of your confidence. Not that you are strong, not that you are exalted. It is that the Christ that you have pledged your life to is exalted. And if he is, then just stand by and watch what he shall do. So let's look at the exaltation of Christ. Let's revel in it. This is enjoyable for me, I hope for you too, in verses 9 through 11 here in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, because Christ humbled himself, obeyed to the point of death on a cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him 
the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Next week, we are going to see once more why Paul has presented this early Christian hymn to us. You remember at the start of chapter 2, Paul was being very practical. He was urging you to be humble, to count the interests of others above your own. That's all very practical. But then all of a sudden, verse 5, he turns to this Christology, this theology about Christ. And he talks about his humiliation and exaltation. We're going to see next week, again, part of the reason he did that. It was because we have an example in Christ. So when he was urging you to be humble, he presents, last two weeks ago, the humility of Christ. He was humble, you should be humble. Now we see here, still by way of example, that God exalted Christ for humbly obeying. So don't you want to be exalted? Then humbly obey in the footsteps of Christ. And we're going to see that next week because he'll start by saying, as you've always obeyed, keep obeying. But I am not convinced that that is the entire reason for Paul including the hymn right here. Just as an example, Christ obeyed, you should obey. Because, partly, if that were the whole reason we're looking at this hymn, then you don't need verses 9 through 11. They serve some benefit, but you really could get that from the verses that came before. If Paul just wants you to be humble and to obey, and Christ the example, well, he showed us last week Christ being humble and obeying. Why, starting in verse 9, does Paul see necessary to include this part of the hymn, which is now about Christ being exalted, and exalted honestly in a way that you and I never will fully be, will be exalted when Christ returns, but exalted above every name, including yours. So that's not exactly an example to us. We're not trying to get that name for ourselves. I believe part of the reason that Paul in verses 9 through 11 sees fit and God through the inspiration of Scripture to present these verses to you today is because you, if you are to have any confidence as a Christian in this world, have to believe with all your heart that Christ has the name above every name, that Christ has unlimited honor and power, not just in theory, but in reality and sits at the right hand of God. He's exalted. Yes, he suffered. Yes, we see him in the manger on Christmas. We remember his weakness, but don't keep thinking of him like that. He's not the baby Jesus anymore. Now he's exalted as the great heir of David. If you're going to be confident in this world as his ambassador, as his servant, as his follower, knowing your own weakness, knowing how fragile you are, then you need to have your eyes on someone who's not fragile and weak. And that is an essential part of the Christian message, not just that Jesus chose to be weak and die for us, but that right now he is not weak and he is not dead, but he is strong and he lives for us. We are talking today about what we call the exaltation of Christ, and it is an essential part of you living a confident Christian life. So that is what we're going to look at today and 
I'll explain why in a second, but we're going to break it into two parts. I want to first consider, as we look at the name of Christ, the great name of Christ, first, one aspect of that name, which is his honor. And secondly, the other aspect of his name, which is his power. So first honor, then power. I'll explain why we divide it that way in a moment. So let's begin then by looking in this passage at the honor of Christ. We have to see this. Um, Begin here in verse 9. Therefore, God has done these two things, which are really one. God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. If you wonder why we divide the sermon into the parts of honor and power, it's because we are mainly dealing with the idea of a name. N-A-M-E, name. That is the essence of what our text is. That is the exaltation of Christ. It's that he's been given a name. When this says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name, you shouldn't think of those as two very separate things that God did. God exalted Christ and part of exalting him, what is to say the same thing, is he bestowed on him this great name, really the greatest of all names. And then you see the consequence in that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But this requires a tad bit of explanation because when you and I think of the word name, what do we think of? We think of the letters by which we designate a specific person. So this person over here is John and this person is Katie. The name is John, the name is Katie. The Bible can use the word name to mean that same thing. In fact, a lot of you are going to be reading the Christmas story In this season, I hope so, and in Luke 1, you remember the angel tells Mary, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And that's an important set of letters designating the person Jesus. So the Bible can use name that way. The thing is, you and I almost always use the word name that way, and the Bible doesn't. The Bible, in fact, Many times, maybe most times, when it uses the word name, means something more than just the letters that designate a person. It means that, but it means something more. We kind of get that because sometimes we'll use name like, this person has a good name. And it means not that the name, the letters are good, but that the reputation is good. But that's rare in English. Not so in the Bible. This is the predominant use of the word name. So just think for a second. You'll know this. If you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, of course, we don't want people using God's name as a cuss word, but is that the entirety of what is meant by that prayer? What do you mean when you ask God to hallow, to preserve as holy his own name? You're not just talking about English letters we use to refer to G-O-D or L-O-R-D. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about more than that. Or think again, in Scripture in the Old Testament, the Lord promises more than once that in Jerusalem and in the temple, I will put my name. Does this mean that God wrote his name in Hebrew on a scroll and just set it in the city? His name's there. No. It means that sort of, but it means more than that. Name means more in the Bible than just the letters. 
And you have to know that or you're not going to understand our text. Because look at our text. God's highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him a name. The name that's above every name. And if you're thinking name just means letters, then you'll spend the rest of your time trying to figure out what is the name. Is it Jesus? Is it Lord? Is it Lord Jesus? Is it Christ? Is it Lord Jesus Christ? Is it Christ Jesus? Lord Christ Jesus? Waste of time. It's a waste of time. In this text, sure, Paul may have in mind a specific name of Jesus. For example, he's going to say in verse 11 that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. So maybe that's part of what he's saying, that God bestowed on him Lord. People did call him Lord before he was exalted. Or at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So maybe the name is Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, or the equivalent in these languages. But I'm telling you, that is not, not the main emphasis of this passage is for you to find the specific name, I promise. Because in the Bible, name means more than the letters. So you may ask, okay, if this whole passage is about God giving Jesus a name, and that's more than just the letters J-E-S-U-S, what is the name? Good of you to ask. It is, one, honor, two, power. Now you understand the outline of the sermon. It is honor and power. The best that I can reckon throughout the scriptures when the word name is used, those are the ideas primarily in view. Honor, reputation, prestige, and power or authority. That is what God bestowed upon the Christ to exalt him. Great honor and great power. That, therefore, is what we're looking at this morning, really, are those two things. So let's begin, now that we've got that explanation of name, with the first part of what this name is. The name of Jesus given to him is honor. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him an honor that is above the honor that every other being has. Now, this is important because we left our Lord just two weeks ago in verse 8 in the place of greatest shame. There was no honor there. You remember that Jesus was crucified. He was naked. He was hung out. He was reckoned a criminal by Jew and Gentile alike. He was crushed under the heel of the powerful Roman Empire. He was outwitted, it appeared, by his Jewish rivals. There was no honor. People spit upon him. They smacked him in the ancient world and today as well. These were signs of dishonoring someone. If you spit upon them, that is dishonoring. Honoring them. That is where Jesus had gone by the time we got to verse 8. No honor. In fact, you remember that the prophet Isaiah had predicted of the earthly Jesus that he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So, verses 5 through 8 no honor. This is part of what is meant 
by though he was in the form of God, he didn't grasp it. He didn't grab it and hold on to it. He gave up his visible honor. More than any of us even in dying on the cross in the ancient world. And our text is telling us, therefore, because Christ was willing to take on that lack of honor, therefore, God gave him as much honor as is possible to give. This is really just a fulfillment of the ancient proverb, humility comes before honor. Last time, humility, this time, honor. Jesus honors God by obeying, now God honors him. This is really the idea in all of the talk about heights. Because if you stop for a moment, you'll notice that this whole text here has a lot to say about spatial elevation. Heights. Did you see that in the text? Did you see that in verse 9? God has done what to Jesus after his death? What does God do? Well, he resurrects him, brings him to heaven at his right hand. The way this describes it as God has highly exalted him. In other words, Paul uses the word exalted, but he attaches a little word to the beginning that means highly exalted. And the idea is spatial to us. It's up, 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 highly exalted. And did you notice even his name? What sort of a name is it? It is a name above, not to the side of, not beneath, not with. It is a name that is above every other name. What are we supposed to make of that? I mean, if we're thinking just literally we take the letters Jesus and think, were those lifted like up in the sky past the clouds? No. Why all of this talk about spatial elevation? Why this talk about being high up, being elevated? Well, partly there is a literal truth to it because Jesus was taken up into the clouds. Wherever Jesus is seated now is elevated above us, relative to us, and how we think of up. True, we're on a big circle flying through space, so where is up? Okay. But we're not thinking all philosophically okay, just up the way we understand it, that's where Jesus went, somewhere up there. And he truly, in space, however this works, there he is. But like I said, it's not just Jesus who's up in our text, verse 9, his Name is above all the names. So you can see it's not just to be taken literally. When God exalts Jesus, gives him a name above other names, what is that? You guessed it. It is honor. It is the subdivision of the sermon. It is honor. That's the idea of being lifted up. You and I understand something of this kind of language, right? If we want to hold up a good example for people to see, we're honoring that example. If you cry down with dictators, down, down where? To the ground? On the ground? No, it's a metaphor. The idea is dishonor them, remove them, we don't want them. So we use the idea of up and down in that way too, just like the Bible does. The idea is greatness. If a mountain is immensely tall and you are looking out up toward the top of it, is that a small, little, pleasant mountain? Or is that a grand mountain? Is that a majestic mountain? Purple mountains, majesty. In your mind, you sing that song, they're not this big. These are large. Why? Because even we think of elevation in terms of grandeur. If you've been to the Grand Canyon and you look down into it, it's the elevation that gives you a sense of something surreal. 
It is the honor, the grandeur, and the greatness of Christ that he's exalted and that his name is above all of the other names. In the ancient world, you know that no one was allowed to raise their head above the head of the king, and he was seated, elevated up several steps, and that's where his throne was. You notice the throne of the king wasn't put in a pit for everyone to look down on the king. And you know that wouldn't be fitting. You don't even live in the ancient world and you know that. Why? We know we need to lift him up. It's a sign of honor. That's what our text is saying. Christian, Christ right now is honored by God with the greatest of all honors. And you may say, it doesn't look that way. I've got neighbors who use his name as a cuss word like he wouldn't believe. He's not honored by them. And we admit it. In fact, the Bible admits it. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's why we're still praying, hallowed be your name. That's why Christ could say just a short time ago, his eager expectation and hope is that Christ will be honored in his body. But I thought Christ was honored with the greatest of all honors. Yes, yes. But it's not clearly visible yet. He has the greatest of all honor. That is a fact. He doesn't need more honor. But in terms of human and angelic perception of his honor, that has to increase. And it shall. At present, Hebrews says, we don't see everything in subjection to him. But it continues. But we see him. And that is where we are now. You and I, we don't see every neighbor of ours falling on their knee and confessing Christ is amazing. That would be wonderful. You'll see that someday. But right now, you see him. You honor Christ. You recognize that he is honored. What does this mean practically if Christ truly has this degree of honor? It means that when you and I talk together, there is always a danger, especially given to certain personalities, that we might flatter each other. I might, in my enthusiasm for you, speak things about you that are actually more than you are. So, sorry if I've done that. We shouldn't do that. But when it comes to Christ, when you speak about Christ, or when you think about Christ, you have not yet, I promise, exaggerated one of His excellencies. Never yet. You have not yet thought of one characteristic of Christ, be that his love or his justice or his goodness, his tender compassion toward you. You have not yet at any moment, even in the highest state of spiritual ecstasy, ever considered one of those characteristics equal to what it actually is. You cannot speak of Christ in a way that exaggerates him, that overplays him. You can go back into the 1800s England and pull out that flowery Victorian language or go back to Shakespeare and get those big words and try to use those to express the beauties and the glories of Christ and you've not exaggerated. This is a large part of the Christian life, perhaps the essential part. It's for you and me, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, in fellowship with each other, by whatever means necessary, to simply believe verse (laughs) 9. That's the main part of your Christian life. It is for you to truly grasp. 
the honor of Christ, his grandeur and his greatness. Right now, you think of Christ as having a name that is very exalted, and many of you would die for him. But there's not one person in here yet who can say that I've attained this. I believe his name is above every name. And you know this because when you are living your life, there are people, whether an employer or a coworker or someone you respect, who you're afraid of. You're afraid to lose their approval. There are people right now you will not share the gospel with because you do not want to offend them. Well, Christ's name is above many names for you, you see? It's not yet above every name. Our goal is to see Christ as he is and to honor him in our word, in our thought, in our conduct, in our life. And we haven't done it yet, but it's our goal. It's what we aim and strive toward. And let those of us who are mature think this way and press on to know Christ more. When we have a Christ like this with honor, who's been exalted in the way Christ is right now, there's not much excuse for us to go on living our boring lives as if they were boring lives. You may think of yourself as rather mundane and your world as fairly grayscale. You're looking at it with a pagan eye. Don't you understand that this Christ is the Christ that you are specifically brought under? Your whole life is lived under and for Him. So your life may be grayscale in itself, but it's not in itself. It has a vital attachment to Christ, and he is at the right hand of God, the majesty on high. If you've been raised with Christ, brothers and sisters, then why do you have your mind set on things on earth? Why are you just thinking about the boring or fearful things that you're reading in the news every day? Why are you just thinking about what you saw on Instagram and comparing it to your life? Why are you just thinking about your future prospects on earth, career and family, etc.? If your mind has not ascended to these airy realms where Christ is, exalted at the right hand of the Father, then you're doing it wrong. This is what gives your life color. This is why when you're not thinking of the honor of Christ, when you're not focused on his name, life doesn't look colorful. By God's purpose, it's not meant to. Because everything else is it's nothing. But God has bestowed this honor on Christ. Your life is not boring. You're a Christian. Look, we honor government and rulers, and even we can have a certain respect for celebrities if they do well, or for those who other people honor and are focused upon. But to us, we give the due honor, but we can't help but regard all of these great names, men and women, as somewhat light, not in a disrespectful way, but simply because we're comparing them all to Christ. And then they seem like dust on a scale, rather insignificant. It's Christ for us, Christ in life, it's Christ in death. He's the one we honor. He's the one we treasure. He's the one we sing of. Crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly chorus, what is it? <laughs> Anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and crown him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Listen, that's meant to be your life. I know it's not always our life. But that's what's meant when our text says that Christ has the greatest name. It means he has the greatest honor. So first, God has given Christ this name, greatest honor. 
but name means more than that. Name also has the idea of power, and it's to that idea we now turn in our text. Look at the rest of our text. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name, and our focus now is power, authority, so that at at the power or authority of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven. You may not even have known there were knees there, but there are. And on earth and under the earth, same. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Power, when that word Lord, that everyone will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a good summary of what we mean when we say that Christ has been given unlimited power, unlimited authority. You are aware that Christ is God, always has been, and therefore, when it comes to Christ as God, he's never lacked power nor authority. But the New Testament is very clear that as a man, as the Christ we know, the God-man, as man, God determined in time after the death and resurrection of Christ to give this authority to Christ. The scriptures say that God has been pleased to make him both Lord and Christ. To make him Lord and Christ. That's what he is, but there's a sense in which he's appointed as Lord because he suffered and resurrected. So he is Lord. The word Lord means more than anything else, power. In the ancient world, the early Christians who would be reading this there in Philippi knew that Caesar was Lord. That was the pressure of the culture. Say that Caesar has the greatest power and authority. But Christianity said, no, it's different than that. Christ is Lord in the ultimate sense. This so that in our text so that at the name of Jesus, it's pointing us forward now. Right now, Christ is exalted, but it's pointing us forward to a day when something will happen. What is that something? It's when everyone finally gets the memo. It's when everyone finally, whether they want to or not, everyone, no exception, recognizes the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, that he is the ultimate Lord over all. Every knee is going to bow to Christ to show him honor, but also to submit themselves under his clear authority. Every tongue is going to say, Jesus, you are the Lord. Those who rejected him, those who took his name in vain, those who didn't give a second thought to him, they are going to be bowing the knee and confessing, you are the Lord. You have the authority. It might not have appeared in their life. It might not appear in your life. You may not be living a life that looks like Jesus is Lord. But you will. But you will. You will put yourself. You notice that it said every. You notice that? Every knee. Every tongue. Do not trick yourself to think not mine. Every. And he literally says in heaven, where are you going to go? Are you going to run to the edge of space? Every knee in heaven, every tongue on earth, every knee 
under the earth. There's nowhere for you to go. You yourself will fulfill verses 10 and 11. You will do it. You will acknowledge the authority of Christ. And the testimony of Scripture is acknowledge it now. It's much better to acknowledge it willingly now when there is yet hope to be saved from his wrath. Kiss the son lest he grow angry and you perish in the way, says the psalm. But whether you do that or not, you will acknowledge his authority. Now we have to pause here and say that this was not some new Christian invention. This wasn't just a group of fishermen overly excited about one of their fellows who died. No, in fact, we have the Old Testament scriptures written hundreds of years prior that testify to the same thing. That this Christ, when he comes, whoever he may be, will have all authority. In fact, here's the text of Isaiah 45, 23. Tell me if you've heard these words. God says, by myself I've sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Here it is. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's what Paul is quoting in this hymn. The amazing thing in this reference is that in Isaiah 45, it's the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh himself, saying to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will acknowledge my power. But notice in our text, he's bestowed this authority. It's not just for him, he's bestowed it on his son. So every knee will bow to him and every tongue confess him. This was hundreds of years before Paul ever put pen to paper, the same thing can be said if we look at great King David, the greatest of all the kings of Israel before Jesus came. You probably know David in the Old Testament mainly as a king. We call him King David, of course. But he was more than a king. He was a musician. The Psalms come from him, many of them. And he was a prophet. It is this rare combination of David as king poet and prophet that brings about something very remarkable. It's this, that if you look at the poetry of David, which is preserved for you in many of the Psalms, which we're doing in our public reading and our Bible reading plan, when you look at the Psalms that David wrote more than once, very often you will find David as a poet who's a prophet begin to speak of not just himself, but one greater than himself because he's also the king and he's looking forward to one of his heirs, the greatest king, the Christ. So we end up with this prophetical poetry about the Christ just because of the unique person David is. So let me just give you an example in Psalm 8. David says, sings, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. So there David is, centuries before Christ is ever exalted in our text. But there he is as king. And he is musing on mankind. What is mankind that God considers him? But because he's also a prophet, when he mentions son of man, well, who will use that title? 
Jesus Christ will use that title. So now our ears are perked up to say, well, what will he say of the Son of Man? He says this, Yet you, God, have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. What Son of Man in history was ever made by God himself a little lower than angels? And crowned him with glory and honor. Do you see Philippians 2 right there in Psalm 8? You made him lower and you crowned him with glory and honor. And now he says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And you can say that's referring to mankind. We have dominion over the animal world, etc., etc., On one level, sure, but this is a prophetic poet and king pointing forward to the Christ. That's why Hebrews 2 picks up this very passage and says this refers to Jesus. Notice, you have put all things under his feet. It was predicted that Christ would have not just all honor, but he would have all power. And so he does. Here's one more psalm, Psalm 110, again from David. You know this one, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord. David was the king and the greatest in Israel. Who could his Lord be? It's Jesus. The Lord says to Jesus, to the Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the consent of Old Testament prophecy that when Christ comes, he would be given by God. Notice the Lord is saying it to him. He's he's appointing him right now. You, you in exaltation, sit at my right hand. In other words, God has highly exalted him until I put your enemies under your footstool. Psalm 8 says everything under your feet. This is Israel's first king, great king, David, prophesying about Israel's last great king, the Christ. And he says, along with all scripture, Isaiah 45, all of scripture pointing to the fact that when the Christ comes, he will be exalted after his suffering. The sufferings of the Christ and the glories to follow and his power will be unlimited. So when we look back at Hebrews 2, which is meditating on Psalm 8, and we read this, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, like Psalm 8 says, God left nothing outside his control, a.k.a. name above every name. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, every knee will bow. And then Hebrews admits, at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. And you may wonder again why this is. Here I am up here on this pulpit, easy to do, just saying Christ has all power and authority, but you're living your life and it doesn't look that way. I mean, when you read the news, when you see things that are happening that cause you fear, when you're looking toward the future, or even in your own life, when diseases arise or pains or sufferings that were avoidable, God could have prevented them. Christ could have raised his scepter and stopped it, and he didn't. When you experience abuse or bullies or whatever it may be, Christ is in power. He could stop that, and he didn't. 
Why do we not at present see all things put in subjection? How can we believe that he is at the right hand of the Father if we don't see his rule now? Paul actually answers that for us in his letter to the Corinthians when he says, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. In other words, there is an already to this and there is a not yet to this. Christ right now has all authority. That's already happened. He doesn't need any more. But there's a not yet because our very text says it, so that at the name of Jesus in the future, it will become clear that he has all authority. It's in the future that every knee bows and every tongue confesses. It's not an argument against his authority. It's just saying he's patient. He's letting people into the kingdom and soon he'll lay his scepter down, smash it down, destroy the nations and rule uncontested and clearly. That is our confidence and that is our hope. Christian, these things might seem like theory, like theology that are floating out there somewhere. But according to scripture, scripture, this is precisely what the tenor of your thoughts ought to be. If the tenor of your thoughts are not about the honor and the power of Christ, well, what else do you have left to think about? <laughs> your life will be boring. You will live a very mediocre sort of a life. But if these are the tenor of your thoughts, if with Paul you can rise with him at the crescendo of the great Christian hymn sung for 2,000 years, if with a great chorus of believers you can join in this anthem and see Christ as exalted in his honor and his power, not perfectly, but if that's where the tenor of your thoughts is, then that eternal weight of glory will make the other details of your life and even the very unpleasant ones seem, in Paul's words, light and momentary. This is the basis of your confidence as a Christian. Not that everything's going great in your life. Bet it's not. Not that everything's going great in your community, in your country, in your church, in your family. I hope it is. It might not be. That is not the basis of your confidence. It's not that the Ammonites and the Moabites have not gathered in Engedi to destroy you. That's not what brings you comfort. You know what brings you comfort? Our eyes are on you. We have no power. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on a great exalted Christ. He is not in the heavens trembling. He is not afraid of any of the things that you are afraid of. He has complete power. He sits in the heavens and as the second Psalm says, when his enemies gather against him, he laughs. He knows the outcome. He knows how history, including your small part in it, shall turn out and he knows it is in the triumph of his name from one end of the world to the other end of the world. So if you face hostilities now and knees that will not bow and tongues that will not confess, Jesus knows that He's been given a great name so that they will in the end. If now you don't see clearly the extent of his scepter to heal your diseases, it's not because Christ is cruel and it's not because he lacks power. It's because he knows that in the end, he will extend the scepter. And in one great mighty act, he will wipe away not only tears, but diseases, illnesses and sicknesses and death will be no more. 
It's not that he can't do it, and it's not that he won't do it. It's that he's waiting to do it. Christ has this name, and your hope and your comfort as a Christian resides primarily in this, that more and more you know it, that more and more you in this life bend your knee happily, and that more and more you confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, we have certainly not spoken too highly of you. We've spoken so small of you. And um, even if I raise my voice or become animated, it doesn't reach the level it ought to be. It doesn't. It just doesn't. It's not that we've attained this or have already become perfect. It's not that we've perfectly grasped yet your great power, your great honor, who you are, Christ. But one thing we do, we forget what lies behind. 2020, 21, we forget it. And we renew our commitment to press forward because you've laid hold of us. We must lay hold of you and perceive you in all your glory and grandeur and greatness. Help us to be a peculiar people in this way, heavenly-minded, where Christ is seated at the right hand of you, our Father. Please help us to think this way.